Hi everyone, welcome back. My name is Anna. And I'm Millie. And we're pleased to be recording again. We've had a little break, but we're excited to be back here with you for the fourth episode of How Do You Solve a Problem Like? This is a podcast that looks at some of the most pressing problems we face in society today and meets the people finding solutions through social purpose businesses. In this episode, we are looking at the problem of hygiene poverty. Focusing specifically on period poverty. It's an issue that was shrouded in stigma and barely talked about a few years ago, but there's been a massive change in recent years. Loads of people have been campaigning, getting real results, and there's lots of people working in that space now who we're going to meet in this episode. We're going to meet Celia from Hey Girls. They make high-quality, sustainable sanitary products, and for every one they sell, they donate another one to someone in need. It sort of grew in the telling. Before we knew where we were, we'd created a brand and we'd ordered a container of product made to our design, bamboo and cornstarch sanitary pads, and it just kept growing. We're also speaking with Gabby from Bloody Good Period, which started with Gabby just asking some of her friends to donate sanitary products to a charity that she was volunteering at. Here's Gabby talking about the very first time that she gave out sanitary pads to women at the refugee centre she was volunteering at. I put everything out on the table so people just didn't feel embarrassed to ask for anything. They could just take what they wanted. I could see how much they were needed. But also, this is something society needs to deal with. Plus, we're joined this episode by another special guest, my colleague Joel, who works at Unlimited with early stage businesses. Hi, I'm Joel and thanks for having me. I'm an award manager at Unlimited. My role is to find, fund and support social entrepreneurs at the early stage, which kind of means working with people who've got an idea, helping them to realise their idea and turn it into a thriving social business. Great. And that's something we'll go into in a bit more detail in this episode, specifically around what do people need and what do you need to think about when you're starting out on this journey? So today we're talking about hygiene poverty. And as we said, we're focusing more specifically on period poverty. But what do we actually mean by that? Anna, can you shed some light on the term hygiene poverty? Yeah, so a lot of people are familiar with the concept that poverty is not being able to meet basic needs. And hygiene poverty, therefore, is a subset of that where you're not able to have access to period products, being able to wash your clothes or to toothpaste, how that impacts on your confidence and being able to engage with employers if you're going for a job interview or just other members of society. It's actually a really significant and deeply personal issue. According to research by charity InKind Direct, a third of people have gone without hygiene or grooming products or cut down on them owing to low finances. And the charity have had to distribute over £175 million worth of products. 2017, Plan International found that one in 10 girls or women aged 14 to 21 in Britain couldn't afford sanitary towels or tampons. And as a result, more than 137,000 girls in the UK missed school for that reason. Wow, that's actually shocking. I hadn't realised it's on that scale. But the good news is there's been massive progress in the last couple of years. This was an issue that was barely talked about or acknowledged not that long ago. But in recent years, there's been untold number of spreads in women's magazines. There's been social media campaigns and ultimately now government funding for free period products in schools, which I think is testament to the energy and zeal of the amazing women working in this space who've really got it on the agenda. So I was really excited to speak with Gabby and hear how she set up Bloody Good Period in 2016 and how it's been going since then. I was volunteering at a drop-in centre for asylum seekers. 
they had sort of the list of all the things that they were collecting that were essential and there were no period products on there even though half the people attending were women the people who were setting up the drop-in were like oh it's just not something that we do regularly we give it out in an emergency that was sort of the moment that the penny dropped that I was like periods aren't an emergency like they never have been and they never should be but if you treat them as such that is how they become and I put a status on Facebook and was just like, can you come and either drop off some pads at my house or can you do it via this Abins and Wishlist? It's for asylum seekers. And it just took off from that. People just really, really wanted to help. And I think part of it was because it was so tangible. It was sending stuff. I wasn't asking for money for running some marathon. And then because of my sort of creative and branding experience, I started to think I should probably like brand this. I should make it into something so people know what it is. And I thought of the name Bloody Good Period because I thought like we need a bit of humour in this. Like periods are awkward to talk about, or they certainly were a few years ago. I think that's one of the really striking things about your brand. You have a really strong visual identity, a real strong voice in terms of the humour that you use and also the sort of relationships that you seem to have, like the networks that you've spread into. You've got lots of kind of high profile ambassadors and doing lots of events. Was that a plan or did that sort of gather pace as you went along? A bit of both. It was something that I felt was really important and I felt that creating a strong brand was really important too because that's how people identify with you. Why did you know it was going to become something? Was it because of the response you had from other people or or the passion you felt or the impact it was having? All of them. The first time I brought the pads to the centre and I sort of handed them over to some women who put them under the table and I could see that people were like as embarrassed as the women giving them out. The next month, I was like, I'm going to have the period table. And I put everything out on the table so people just didn't feel embarrassed to ask for anything. They could just take what they wanted. I could see how much they were needed. And so I started researching other drop-in centres, other shelters, calling them up, emailing them, and just being like, you know, what is the situation with period supplies? I realised there really wasn't anything that was giving out these products on a regular basis. That's when I started to realise it needed to be like an organisation. It needed to be something with logistics, something with policy and aims and objectives. How did you start to go about that? What were the first things you were considering? The easiest way to get people to hear about it was social media. So I think the first thing I did was a Facebook page and then a Twitter account and then an Instagram. That was like crucial in getting the message out. Branding was really important. So it was all about the people who were giving rather than anything to do with like poverty porn. So I thought, right, well, we'll focus on like having a laugh with it as well and building community. The nature of this podcast is we know that, you know, in order to create something really sustainable, to have a big impact, you need to have some kind of financial sustainability. Where did that come in? You said for the first year, everyone was working for free and in kind because they just wanted to help. But that can only last for so long, right? So how did you start to think about the structure of the organisation and making it sustainable? And where are you at with that now? I think maybe a six months or so into doing it, a really good friend of mine, Jem Stein, runs the bike project, social enterprise slash charity. He started becoming a sort of mentor and he introduced me to a charity incubator called SIVA, Centre for Innovation and Voluntary Action, who basically sort of placed under their umbrella which meant we could fundraise that was sort of the first step then people started asking us how can I donate money 
So we set up a Just Giving page that people just started donating to. We didn't really go the traditional route of applying for loads of funds. I just didn't have time. I didn't know how to do fundraising applications. But once I had sort of a chair of trustees and also a fundraising trustee, they were like, this is what we need to do. You need to be paid. People working in charitable organisations have to be paid. They started helping me work out like how we were going to do that. And so I ended up going part time two years in. Now my salary is funded by three trusts and foundations. One of them's the Bill Gates Foundation and the other two are private. You've reached this point now where you've got huge following, you've got huge goodwill behind you, you're having a real impact, but you have this very recognisable and strong sort of brand as well. Have you thought about the possibility of kind of taking that into the sort of social enterprise space? It is something that I thought about. So the most obvious way of doing that would be to go with period products mm. but actually there's such great tech around at the moment and such great female inventors that they don't need another one they don't need me quite quickly I realized the idea of collecting products from members of the public and giving them to people who need them isn't a sustainable model even if we kept up the rhetoric and the branding and everything for years and years and years it doesn't really work Because people will continue to have periods and refugees and asylum seekers will have small amounts of money. And until products are free, they won't be able to get them unless somebody gives them to them. And also our aim has always been that we don't want to exist anymore. We shouldn't have to be giving out products to people. They should be free like toilet paper is in public places or free like condoms are via the government. And we're getting closer to that now. We've started doing other things as well, like pushing for menstrual equity. Basically, at the moment, anyone who has periods is not treated as an equal in society because of the way that we work, because of the way that schools are set up. So we're working more towards that kind of thing. And we're also providing education now for a lot of the people that we work with at the drop-in centres, which has been really successful. I think that's a journey that entrepreneurs I've met for this series have gone on, where you start to work in your corner, quite small and local at first, and then as you sort of build, you realise actually this is a system issue, you need to change the system. Mm -hmm. But as you said before, you're hoping to solve this problem and sort of do yourself out of a job. Does that scare you or do you have ideas of what you'll do next? Oh my God, it terrifies me. But the fact that it just terrifies me is good because it's only me who I have to worry about if bloody good period is closed down. What it will mean is everybody else benefits from it. So yes, it's great. I don't know exactly how long this is going to take, but I think that this is an issue that we can solve. Like, I really do. But it's going to take things like an end to the stigma. It's going to take, like, an education globally. And it's going to take just a whole shift in understanding. So I don't know how long it's going to take, but I really believe it's doable. In terms of what I do next, I think I'm probably going to be a serial social entrepreneur. There are lots of things that I have to learn about system change and entrepreneurship that I might not get the chance to in this situation so I'll do it in the next one. It'll always be something to do with social justice and feminism but yeah it scares me but it's quite exciting. What's really interesting for me from Gabby's work is a wider question. Can you create a viable business model around a social movement? Joel, I'm sure you have some reflections. Surely you can, and we've seen it done. Many people approach us because they're motivated to be change makers, 
they're really fired up by an issue and they want to do something about it. But with the best intentions and the best will in the world without a business model, ultimately the good work can't continue. The answer is there's lots of different sources where you can get money from. Common models that we see would be the Robin Hood model where you sell a product or service to one group and the proceeds of that allow you to gift something to another group. It could be something entirely different. Another model is the one-for-one model where you buy a product and the venture gifts one to somebody who might not be able to buy it for themselves. A third model is cash for impact where the venture creates impact in the world and they can sell the outcome, sell their work to another stakeholder who's invested in those outcomes. A fourth model would be the impact employer, where the fact that you employ people who are distant from the labour market, that's your impact. It's the workforce that you have, which makes you a social enterprise. And there's some really useful tools out there. The NCVO, which is the National Council for Voluntary Organisations, created something called an income spectrum, which helps you to think about the broad spectrum of where money can come from, from at one end of the spectrum, asking for money in the form of donations, for example, to the other end of the spectrum, earning that money, trading in the free market, selling a product or a service to a business or a customer. So there's lots of different sources in between. And if you sit down and look at that spectrum and consider the different sources, then you can begin to work out which are most appropriate for your venture, your mission and the thing that you have to sell. Have you got any examples of people who are using different sources of funding in sort of unexpected or interesting or unique ways? Yeah, definitely. The one-for-one model. Quite often you see product which is appealing to the general public. You can sell that product to one consumer who has the money to pay and you can gift it to another who might not have recourse to money to pay for that product. Mad Lug Bags gift bags to young care leavers. So for every bag sold, they give one away for free. Edit Hats where you buy a hat and a person who's experiencing homelessness will receive one for free. So it's definitely true that you can subsidise people's access to a product or a service by making money elsewhere. Mm. I've also seen Hackney Arts sell corporate days where they come and teach corporates as fun staff away days. They teach them all sorts of different exciting arts-based projects and that allows them to then run those same courses for free to people in Hackney. Anything else that people can think about? Yeah, we hear one called Impact Seller. The idea is that you create impact in the world and you have another stakeholder is invested in those outcomes and they'll pay you to deliver that outcome. That could be education outcomes, it could be reduced reoffending, or any number of things. One example would be Sue, who set up Tang Hall Smart. She essentially delivers music workshops as a hook to bring people in, people with all sorts of complex needs, and ultimately goes on to deliver a whole array of outcomes for those individuals, whether it's learning, whether it's reduced reoffending, whether it's reduced antisocial behaviour, that kind of thing. And Sue is a classic case where she started with impact first. She knew the impact she wanted to create. She didn't know what the business model would be to enable that. But by having a go, creating results and showing that it worked, she now has eight referring organisations who pass people to her all the time and pay her for the impact. We've got another enterprise, Nemi Tees, who we work with, who also works with refugees. And their model is quite interesting because what they do is they give employment opportunities. So their beneficiaries are actually their employees. And then they sell a very nice tea. I'm a bit of a tea snob and their tea I can vouch for. I think the impact employer model is probably one of the better known 
social enterprise models. If you think of Big Issue magazine, it's well understood as a social enterprise. It has a product which it sells on the streets of the UK and it employs a workforce of people who've experienced homelessness. That's really interesting for people who want to kind of build enterprises and see growth and kind of expand their service and, and hopefully deliver more and, and create more impact. But I was just thinking the name of this podcast is How Do You Solve a Problem Like? And this episode is based around hygiene poverty and period poverty. And in terms of solving a problem, Amica George, who's the young woman who at the age of 18 started the Free Periods campaign in order to get period products into schools. She's done that as an online campaigner, incredibly creating impact. I mean, she just created a movement, basically, and had thousands of girls out protesting on the street, eventually resulting in it landing up for discussion in Parliament and the legislation being made to make that a thing that is provided in schools. So she can kind of retire at the age of 19 because she's done what she set out to do. Yeah, sounds like a tremendous (laughs) achievement from Amica. What that highlights for me is If you're clear on what you're setting out to achieve, then you keep your eyes on the prize and you you do whatever's required to realise that. Maybe that's creating a sustainable social venture. Maybe it's operating as a campaigner. Maybe it's influencing locally, nationally, something else. There's multiple ways to do it, but just be clear on what you're aiming to achieve, the issue that you're wrestling with, and then go for it. We sent Sam, our incredible sound designer, to the Lion's Den, an event of almost all women, on a Sunday morning drinking Bloody Mary's, the Bloody Big Brunch, and he went there to meet Celia, the founder of Hey Girls. So we're in Shoreditch and we're going to the Bloody Big Brunch. The vision behind it is that you exchange menstrual products for a Bloody Mary. It's going to be quite rowdy. So there are different people here with different campaigners that are doing free period campaigning. Hi Dan. Dan's part of the team that created the Bloody Big Brunch. Tell us who we've got coming today. We have DJ Ashley James, stylist Grace Woodward. And we might even have E.L. James, the writer of Fifty Shades, on our way. Hello. Hello, beautiful people. We're very keen to see men here. Yeah. What brought you here today? Brunch and supporting... I think it destigmatizes speaking about it. It's not something that's glamorous or sexy or something that people are comfortable talking about. So I think something like this is really important. So with the big bloody brunch now in full swing, I spoke to Celia about the event and her related social enterprise, Hey Girls. My name is Celia Hudson and I'm the founder of Hey Girls. Hey Girls is a buy one, give one period product social enterprise. So for every packet that we sell, we donate a box to a woman or girl in need in the UK. I experienced period poverty bringing up my kids. I was a single parent, three children, and you just barely manage. My kids are now in their mid-30s and it hasn't changed for women who are just about managing. In fact, people's lives are far more vulnerable than they were 20 odd years ago. So I had a conversation with my daughters about period poverty and we wanted to do something that would make a really big impact and be viable so it didn't need to survive off grant funding. It sort of grew in the telling Before we knew where we were, we'd created a brand and we'd ordered a container of product made to our design, bamboo and cornstarch sanitary pads, and um, it just kept growing. 
And recently, actor Michael Sheen's also taken up the cause. Hey Girls, a UK-based social enterprise is here to help us end the stigma of talking about periods and buying period products. Not only that, but they're also supporting young women who don't have access to these products. I did not want Hey Girls to be a sympathy purchase, so you just buy one packet. I wanted women to buy this every time they had their periods or people to gift a subscription to somebody else. So the quality of product had to be the thing that kept them coming back. Our products are all biodegradable. There's no plastic in our products. We do bamboo and cornstarch sani pads, organic tampons, bamboo reusable pads, medical grade silicone, menstrual cups. And just this month, we're launching an organic tampon in a sugarcane bio-based applicator. For every box of tampons that we sell, there is one donated. And we try and donate into the locality in which that product is sold. So at the end of the month, we get a printout from our retail partners to say how much product they sold, and then we match that. We've got just over 200 donation partners up and down the UK. Logistics nightmare, as you can imagine, because not only are you delivering to distribution centres and people's homes, you're then matching that all over again with your donations. And we live our values, so everybody that we buy from is a social enterprise. Our warehousing is done by a social enterprise. Our menstrual cups come to us loose, and then we pack them in their organic cotton bags and in a cardboard box, and all of that is done in the UK by a social firm. We also have a flat pay structure, so everybody in the organisation gets the same pay. And that was important to me, that there was no hierarchy and pleased to say I got paid in December for the first time so yeah <laughs> that was good but the girls know how much I get paid and it builds camaraderie we're not taking big salaries out we're taking just enough to manage all our products we sell online through a beautiful network of independent retailers so whether they're eco-living or pharmacists or lifestyle stores and then we sell in Asda and Waitrose co-op from June and then hopefully Tesco later in the year we didn't pitch to the supermarkets the supermarkets came to us I went along with our products and had the chat about what Hey Girls was and the mission behind it and the vision for eradicating period poverty and just talked about the products they asked me questions like can you reduce your wholesale price to which I said no because the lower I take that the more likely it is to damage the give one part and I don't want to do buy a packet give half a packet they also ask for exclusive deal and I've said no because we can't eradicate period poverty by selling in 300 as the stores we've got to sell in every supermarket we can get in having exclusive deals with supermarkets brings a better business deal so they pay you much quicker and they give you more marketing support I just wasn't willing to sign myself up to just one supermarket when the vision was for Hegel's to be absolutely everywhere in every supermarket. So yeah, that was quite challenging, really. So we're in 280 Asda stores, 80 Waitrose stores. We're going in co-op, 390 stores in June and another large supermarket. It's really amazing. and You don't actually get time to stop and go, wow. Welcome to Body Big Brunch. I am Levite, I'm one of the founders of Brunch. This is Celia Hodson, the founder of Hey Girls, our amazing partners. 
At the end of our 12 months, we did a first year's impact report. We don't know yet what's the impact of a girl receiving free products at school. But what we were able to report was we were stocked in 15 councils, nine universities were buying from us, that we had put product into 1,400 schools, that we had our 200 partners geographically split from the Shetland Isles down to Wales, down to Kent. So 200 partners taking the give one pieces. And I suppose the big stat was that we donated 2.4 million products. It's a colossal amount of products, really, that's gone out. And it's only gone out because customers have continued to buy. So we've got a growing list of food banks and community groups who email us to say, can we have a donation? We also have a growing list of folks who say, can we put your product in our party bag? To which I said, no. Hegel's is about getting product out to people who really need it. So we have quite a rigorous application form to find out what their mission is and what they're trying to do, but also to find out how they're going to give product away. And that varies greatly. So we say, if you're going to take a Hey Girls donation, we'd like you just to put it out there right at the front where everybody can see it. You just encourage people to take them. In fact, why not ask them? It's just trying to do a little bit of education and to get over the shame, you know, the stigma of asking for menstrual products. But they're just amazing donation partners, mainly volunteer networks, and they work tirelessly to get products out to folks in need. Part of the joy of it is that we collaborate. We're huge partnership builders. We purposefully go out and say, we see what you're doing is amazing. How can we add value to it? Would you like to come and join us doing this kind of thing? The whole of the Bloody Big Brunch is a room full of people supporting people. So good to meet you, finally. My name's Gemma Abbott and I'm a volunteer coordinator for the Red Box Project. For us it's an amazing way to raise awareness about the Red Box Project about the work that we do to alleviate period poverty. And we're going to hopefully get a huge amount of donations. When we attended the brunch last summer, we went home with bags and bags and bags full and it really helped us to push into even more schools. So hopefully that will come out of today as well. How many boxes have you got across the UK now? Almost 3,000 red boxes in schools, colleges, youth clubs, basically anywhere where young people might be regularly and also be struggling to access menstrual products. Do you know, it's all been a big challenge. I use my LinkedIn to ask the stupid question. So, could anybody give me five top tips on importing from China? And people I hadn't spoken to for 10 years came back with a bit of guidance. And someone said, make sure that the barcodes on your packaging and your barcodes on your carton aligns with the barcodes in the bay where your product has been stored. And I thought, I haven't even thought about barcodes. Oh my God, how do you get a barcode? So you just have to learn. There's just been so many challenges, but each one of them has been hugely exciting.
one of the many very impressive things about Celia there, I think, was just how ballsy and clear she was in her mission. And she wasn't going to compromise any of her values or principles for anyone, not even, you know, massive retailers, no doubt offering her lots of money. She just stood firm. And I think that's really incredible and really inspiring. And that's not that easy to do if you haven't got a lot of money and someone or an organisation that does have a lot of money is saying you can have this money, but we're going to put some conditions on it. That's really hard to kick back against and stand firm in your principles. And I guess that's one of the risks of working with big brands, bigger businesses and sponsors. It really is. And especially if you're a fledgling social business that's struggling to sustain itself, struggling to pay staff even, or you don't have long-term visibility for where the money's going to come from, of course it's going to turn your head if there's an offer of money on the table. Whenever there's an opportunity to start a new partnership, whether it's a financial arrangement or other, we see that entrepreneurs really need to be cautious to ensure that there's a real values match. Because if there's not an alignment in values, that can deviate your mission I guess it could like devalue your authenticity. If people see that you're working with a company who clearly don't share your values and in fact perhaps are creating harm in some way and then you're trying to set yourself up as someone who's solving a problem, you can understand that that would be very bad PR and also probably weigh quite heavy on your conscience in some way. You mentioned, Joel, that a lot of startup businesses rely quite heavily on grant funding and we've also seen this mission creep when people are chasing grants because they are just looking for funding and they go, yeah, we can do that, whatever it is, I'm sure we'll be able to do it and not focusing on what is the best thing that they do and what is the actual benefit that they wanted. That can be done in the short run, but actually you probably will come unstuck in the long run. So it's thinking about the trade-off between money today and having an actual business that you can be proud of in three, five years time. I think you'd begin to lose your identity as an organisation as well if you're one day offering X and then the next day it's Y and then the week after that it's Z because you're no longer trusted and known to the people that you're setting out to serve. It becomes a bit unclear what it is that you do, what's your new unique place here, what's your unique offer, what can you do for me that nobody else is doing. What's really struck me in Celia's interview was her learning journey and how many different things you have to think about when you're starting a business. She said she was thinking about stock management and barcodes, and that's not something that she'd ever had to find out about before. So I guess also having a very clear mission helps you understand what is it that you need to learn and what is it that you need to do. And that helps it be a bit more manageable. And then you can break it down and step by step actually succeed. Some of the most exciting change makers, I think, are approaching this from a place of I want to make an impact in the world and I've got an idea how to do that. I'll figure out the business stuff later. And... If they do it and do it well, then it can be infectious and people begin to rally around and supporters and maybe donors and maybe funders and maybe customers begin to fall in line as well. But it's at that point that you need to be very cautious about which ones are the right ones for us, which ones will keep us on course rather than deviate us from our mission. So some little takeaways from this. One thing is that to solve a problem, you don't necessarily have to start an enterprise. You could either join someone else or you could become an activist. And I think to build on that for me, all the options that we discussed today, they don't have to be exclusive. We've seen really great businesses that combine different elements of this and they have businesses that incorporate multiple revenue streams and that makes them really sustainable and resilient in case something goes wrong. 
it means that they have access to wider networks and partners because they've been really clever about mixing and matching what allows them to have the most impact. And if you want to find out any more about hygiene, poverty and our featured guests, Celia and Gabby, or how to get started on your own journey, do check out our show notes on our website, uh, problemlike.com. Thank you to Joel for coming on as our special guest. If you had any thoughts about this episode, please come and talk to us on Twitter at a problem like. You can also let us know there what you think we should be discussing in future. If you've listened to this podcast and enjoyed it, you can share it with your friends or colleagues or do please leave us a review. It means the world to us. Thanks for joining us. Mm